Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to another Faith and the Outdoors podcast with Sean McVeigh. And in this podcast, I'm going to be doing some more question and answers. I've had a ton, so I'm going to address that. But in a couple of the upcoming episodes, I've got a number of guests lined up, which I'm very excited about for you guys to see. So we'll be meeting a couple new guys in the near future. But for today, I will be addressing some more questions that have come my way. Now, I'm going to start off with somebody commented extensively on the last podcast on YouTube. And, you know, I keep asking people, please email me your questions or comments. This person brought up some stuff and I tried to address it on there. Here is the scenario. In the podcast, either that one or the one before, I said, we're justified by works and not by faith alone. He quoted that and said, you're wrong and went on, um, I don't know, the word that comes to my mind is a tirade, but he he went on to explain um, something about faith this and faith that. And so I just responded. I said, well, read to me or or write down for me what James 2.24 states. So he replied to that, and rather than just state what James 2.24 states, which is word for word what I mentioned in my previous one or or with the podcast, and he said that's not true. Uh, he went on to say, well, no, you know, you got to take it in context and this, that, and the other thing. So anyhow, <laughs> I want to start off by addressing the topic of faith and works. And I want to really draw to your attention of how the devil can use this to keep people from seeing the teachings of Jesus. So in order to do that, we need to start with prayer because none of us are going to get anywhere with anything without God's grace and help. And in a special way, we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin as we pray to our Father in the name of his Son, Jesus, and through the power of his Holy Spirit. Father, we want you. We need you. That is how you made us. That is desires that you have put into us. We ask you to guide us to all truth, to your son Jesus. Help us hear the guidance of the Holy Spirit, both now and always. We pray all this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, and we trust in confidence that you will hear and answer our prayer. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, let me just say this for those who are listening or watching who get very hung up on the idea of faith and the whole concept of works, this whole, let's call it a battle, has been the tool of the evil one to keep good, well-intentioned Christians from finding and embracing and following the fullness of truth. Please realize that the devil has been deceiving human beings for thousands of years, and he is very good at what he does. Now, for somebody who has experienced Jesus and wants to believe in Jesus and wants to follow Jesus, the devil is not going to be successful in getting them to flat out reject Jesus. What's the devil going to try to do? He's going to try to prevent them from having everything that Jesus wants them to have, which is ultimately Jesus in the Eucharist, which I have been really urging you to pray with the scripture of John chapter 6, 51 through 58. Well, I'll talk more about that again later, of course, but 
if he can distract you from that, that substantial and significant and foundational teaching, then, then he can keep you from having what he himself cannot have, which is total union physically and spiritually with Jesus Christ himself, our God and Savior. So let's talk about faith for a minute. So as I mentioned in James 2.24, it says we're justified by works, not by faith alone. And if that immediately clicks your mind into going down arguments of faith like this gentleman did, um, that's pause it right there. Pause it right there and set that aside because a fixation on faith alone or a primacy of faith over works or anything like that is only going to serve to distract you from what Jesus is trying to say to us. Now, for this particular individual who I was addressing, I pointed him to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 first because it shows us clearly that it is that where faith fits into, rather, with all the other theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and charity, or love. Faith, hope, and love are the three, basically we call these the supernatural virtues that are given to us by God. So 1 Corinthians 13, uh, I'm just going to read the first couple verses, and then I'm going to mention one that comes later on. It says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels... But do not have love. I am a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I have, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then at the end it says, so faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Now, when we look at this, we realize that faith and love are two separate virtues. They are not the same. They are very different virtues. Now, we only love God because he first loved us. It says that in one of the epistles of John. So the response of love, of receiving God's love, is the desire to love in return. Now, that manifestation of love takes on two forms. One is through our acts of love. We, we express love through our body. So let me give you a, a perfect example. Um, when I want to show my love for my children, I hug them. It's a physical action. When Jesus wanted to show us the depth of his love, he let us crucify him on a cross, and he used his body to show us the manifestation of his love. So we love, which is a virtue, in response to the love God has given us. And that manifests itself through our actions. Now, another way that we assent to this virtue of love 
is by placing our faith in Jesus. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that when we are judged before God after this life is over, we're going to be judged on both our faith and our love. However, I'm going to show that in Scripture, it doesn't even mention faith in our judgment. And it's this is done to show that faith alone or a fixation on faith is is incorrect and it's not helping us. It's not helping us live the way God's calling us to. It's not helping us find and follow the fullness of truth. So again, we love because God first loved us and that's the virtue of love. It's not the virtue of faith, it's the virtue of love. Now, faith fits into the virtue of love because when we experience the love of Jesus, We want to follow him. So that involves a willful choice to embrace the teachings of Jesus. So now, um, if you have a Bible handy, turn to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. So Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus himself teaches us what the final judgment is going to be like. And in this, we can see how Jesus judges us either worthy of heaven or condemned to hell. So it says this, the son of man, excuse me, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when was that? When was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will say to them, Truly I say to you, just as you did it, to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it for me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are cursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not give me clothing. Sick, in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, both but excuse me, but the righteous to eternal life. Now as we see The people who go to heaven are the people who loved others. That's what the judgment is based on. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I think 
starts around verse 10, we see St. Paul talking about the day, referring to the day of judgment. So after we die, I believe it's the book of Hebrews that says that we all die once and then we're judged. So we receive a judgment after our death. And on that day, our works will be tested. Not our faith, but our works will be tested. So again, we're seeing the importance of our acts of love as far as God's determining who's saved and who's not. It's, it's, more, it's more lining up with our acts of love, which is a greater virtue than the virtue of faith, as we saw in 1 Corinthians. Now, I'm going to flip over real quick in my Bible to Matthew chapter 7, and I'm going to look at verse 21. Here, let me find it. Okay. Now, Jesus is, again, referring to who is saved and who is not saved. It says, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds, many mighty deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. So as we see, these people had such faith in Jesus that they were able to do mighty deeds and cast out demons in the name of Jesus. My friend who's listening right now, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or whatever you call yourself, or if you're not even a Christian, whatever, if you have so much faith so as to move mountains or to cast out demons or do mighty deeds in the name of Jesus, can you see from Scripture that these amount to nothing when it comes to those who are going to go to heaven? The people who go to heaven, according to Jesus, are those who do the will of his Father. Now, what is the will of his Father? It is to believe in Jesus, which is to believe in Jesus' teaching, and to love God and others. So, the core foundational ways that God grants us salvation is through his sacraments, I detail this really extensively and very clearly in my new book, Become a Better Archer and Use It to Avoid Sinning. Again, a great resource if you have more interest in this topic. But Jesus says in Mark 16, 16, that we must believe and be baptized. He also says in John 3, 5, unless you're born again of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And in 1 Peter 3, 21, St. Peter says that, The washing of the earth, the evil from the earth in the flood of Noah, prefigured baptism, and it is baptism that saves you now. Those are the words of St. Peter. And if you read in the book of Acts, when Peter speaks and preaches after receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the people are cut to the heart, and they say, what must we do, brothers? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, people, including this guy who I was I was originally addressing all this to, he was saying that, no, you know, baptism is just a symbol. It doesn't actually do anything. It's, you need the Holy Spirit. And again, this is a misunderstanding of the Scriptures and a misapplication of faith. So a lot of well-intentioned Christians— 
have come up with these ideas that you don't need baptism because all you need is faith. Because that is a teaching that was invented by a human being in the 16th century. Martin Luther promulgated the idea that you need faith alone. And so when when someone embraces that incorrect teaching, they begin to misunderstand and misinterpret other concepts in Scripture. And even in their own human reasoning, they deduce, okay, well, you don't need baptism because all you need is faith. And so that is where the breakdown happens. And the devil plays on the thoughts and feelings of those individuals to keep them away from the truth. So if you've ever had a resistance to the Catholic faith or what I, the things that I've been saying, it's, it's really connected to that, to that way that the devil manipulates us and our thoughts and feelings when we've already embraced something that's not true. Now, in order to help make this explicitly clear, I invite you to read in the book of Acts chapter 8 and... Let me just flip to it real quick. Um, It starts in verse 26. So what you'll see in that situation is the Holy Spirit brings Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading Scripture, and Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I without someone to, to teach me? And so we don't hear a word of what Philip teaches this Ethiopian eunuch, but we do know that he preached Jesus Christ to the eunuch. And then we see the response of the eunuch. Suddenly he sees water and says, look, there is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? They go down into the water. Philip baptizes him. And then the Holy Spirit takes Philip away. So let's observe the activity of the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit did not give that person the faith and understanding and whatever he needed by himself to be saved. So even if the person was reading scripture and came to faith in Jesus, it wasn't enough. That is why the Holy Spirit's action was to bring the designated minister of God's church to the Ethiopian eunuch. And what was the purpose? was one, to teach, to proclaim the truth, and two, was to baptize, because that is necessary in God's plan for salvation. Now, I'm going to flip to the second letter of Peter, chapter 3, verse 16. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because the same individual who was, you know, writing all this stuff to me was referring, every reference was to the writings of St. Paul. Who walked with Jesus for three years and was taught directly by Jesus? It was the apostles. And then Paul came later. Paul didn't actually walk with Jesus. Okay? So in 2 Peter 3.16, it says this. Now, this is St. Peter writing. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 15, midway through. It says, So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Speaking of this, as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here we have Peter, who was taught by Jesus, taught the path of salvation, and he's saying that some of Paul's letters are difficult to understand. We also have to remember that St. Paul is writing to communities that were having difficulty that were already established Christians. 
that means they already heard the initial proclamation of the gospel and embraced it. That means they heard you need to be baptized, and so they were. And they needed their the, the apostles to lay hands on them that they might receive the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we see in the book of Acts that they, they needed to be both baptized and receive the laying on of hands. We now Catholic Church now refers to that as confirmation because there's a different type of laying on of hands that involves holy ordination. If you saw the last episode or one of the least recent episodes, I just had a priest here, he has the grace of ordination or the sacrament of holy orders through the laying on of hands, which is something that has a line of succession from the apostles till now. But that is a different laying on of hands than the one that we now refer to as confirmation. So all people, all baptized individuals, are also confirmed in the Holy Spirit. So there's three sacraments of initiation that Jesus gave us that fully initiate us into the covenant relationship he established. I don't have time to get into what the word testament means today, but it ultimately means covenant. And that means the whole Bible talks about the covenant relationships God established to save us. Now, we get very distracted from this message with that whole faith argument that I addressed, you know, have been addressing and what that person was kind of going on about. But to fully enter into the new covenant, we, one, need to be baptized. Jesus gave us that teaching. I already referred to you uh, passages that, that teach us we need to be baptized. We also get the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the imposition of hands, through the laying on of hands, which we refer to as confirmation. And we need the Holy Eucharist. And I've been saying this. I'm going to just read it one more time. It's probably a good thing to read many times because sometimes it takes us more than once to really fully be able to embrace something. I'm turning to John chapter 6. This is a depiction of the third sacrament of initiation, which is receiving the body and blood of Jesus into our body. So in John chapter 6, verse 50, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. My friends, I've given you this example before. I've given it in my book. I'm going to mention it again. Picture two people standing here. Picture one person eating the physical body of God and the other person eating a mere piece of bread. Now remember, 
Anything that you eat, that you put into your body, becomes part of you. That is how we grew to be an adult, those of us who are adults. We were an infant at one point in time. All of us at one point in time weighed 10 pounds. Many of us weigh more than 10 times that amount now, and that's because we ate food, and the food physically became part of our own flesh and blood. So what happens to the person who eats the flesh and blood of the living God? That means that the flesh and blood of the living God becomes one with the flesh and blood of that person. Now, imagine the person next to me who only eats a mere piece of bread. All that becomes part of them is bread. It is so radically different. And my friends, who doesn't want you to have that type of union with God Almighty? It's the devil. And he will use every trick he can possibly muster to keep you from that. So my friends, that is um, a summary of that concept. Please do not get distracted with this whole faith. Let's call it an argument. Faith is important, but faith alone or faith in and of itself, it's not what is ultimately necessary for salvation by itself. Faith and love. And love is a far more powerful virtue than faith. And as we saw, it is love from God that inspires us to love him in return. And our acts of love that we do are manifested in our works. And we also assent our faith to the teachings of Jesus in love. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I came to terms with the teaching on the Eucharist as a young adult. And I realized I did not believe Jesus was truly present in the Eucharist, even though I was raised in the Catholic faith, went to Catholic school from kindergarten through 12th grade. I didn't believe it. It just, I didn't have the faith to believe it. And when I realized that, I was like, okay, I'm either in the wrong church or I need to change. I'm wrong. And so I begged Jesus to lead me to the truth, whether it was the Catholic Church or any other denomination, whatever. I was like, just lead me. All I want is you. And I said, Lord, for one week, I will do my best to be a Catholic. And if this is the right church, please show show me that. Show me that you are present in the Eucharist. And what I realized is I could not believe in this teaching. I couldn't do it. Left to myself, and you left to yourself, we are incapable of having the faith necessary to believe in this teaching. If you truly want Jesus, put everything else aside, abandon yourself to him, and tell him, Lord, all I want is you. I want the truth about you. I want it all. Guide me to that truth. And if that means being Catholic, Lord, I need the faith to be able to be a Catholic because I can't see it right now. And especially when it comes to this teaching on the Eucharist, I can't believe it. it it's too much. I, I'm, I'm incapable. If you abandon yourself to Jesus and then you spend time talking to him and his reading his word, read John 6, 51 through 58 slowly and prayerfully and ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what is true. I do believe that a genuine, sincere heart 
will be rewarded with the gift of faith. That's what happened to me. I believe that 99% of everyone who does this will find that this is true and will want to be Catholic. And there, there's always a possibility that this one singular teaching of the Eucharist will not be that first starting point. And that's why I leave 1% open. But for many of us, this needs to be, it has to be the first and crucial part because it is Jesus. And in fact, this is the only teaching Jesus ever gave where he allowed his own followers to leave him and invited the apostles to do the same. So in verse 60 of chapter of John chapter 6, the, the, the disciples, the close followers of Jesus said, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? And then in John 666, remember that 666 is the number of the devil, the deceiver, the father of lies. It says that they no longer went with Jesus and they went back to their former way of life over this teaching. And Jesus turned to the 12 apostles and says, do you also want to go? In other words, you have to believe this because this is it. This is me. This is the foundational piece of it all. So everything, salvation is all through and only through Jesus. And it is through these sacraments of initiation with the climactic moment being the Eucharist that we need for salvation. Now, don't get distracted by arguments about faith and works because that's it's not helping us. What is necessary is we receive these sacraments to receive God and his grace, because through these sacraments, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the physical body of Jesus. That's what Jesus came to do. We were separated from him through sin. He came to make us one with him and one with each other. All those who place their faith in this are one in him. We all have the same belief. We are all united in love in Christ. So Jesus came to create unity and community in him first. And then everything flows from that. If you are outside of that, arguing about faith and works, you are not finding the core of it all. You're not penetrating to the center of the heart of it, which is Jesus in the Eucharist and these sacraments. So, okay, I've addressed that. And I want to get on, move on to some of these other teachings um, that, or questions rather that I've been asked. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to flow from this a little bit too. So it says, if the Catholic Church is truly, is, excuse me, if the tra- Catholic Church is truth, truthful church, I guess, I guess what this person is trying to say, if the Catholic Church is the one true church that Jesus started and continues to lead and guide through the Holy Spirit, why doesn't God bring all, them all to the Catholic Church? Non-Christians, atheists, or wherever, whatever, that have said they found Jesus when they hit rock bottom and Jesus brought them to their non-denominational church or wherever that is not Catholic, if God was really speaking to them, wouldn't God have brought them to the Catholic church? Great question. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. First of all, we're all led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is intentionally trying to lead all people to the fullness of truth, which can only be found in the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church also has the fullness of grace available to human beings. The Holy Spirit wants everyone to have that. God wants everyone to have that, and so, and so is trying to do that. Now, as you noticed, 
from the book of Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch was earnestly trying to find God and was even reading scripture, but didn't understand scripture on his own. The Holy Spirit did not inspire the Ethiopian eunuch on his own to find the fullness of truth. Rather, the the Holy Spirit sent one of God's chosen disciples to the eunuch to guide him to the fullness of truth, and he was baptized. So there is an element where God wants to work through people to guide others to the fullness of truth. And that if we just look at Jesus, Jesus didn't just come and preach and hand us a book. He could have did that. He didn't. Rather, he intentionally trained 12 men to be the ministers of his word and his sacraments. So they were the ones who would carry it on and those who would come after them through succession, through holy orders. And so there's this this element where God works through his people to bring people to truth. Now, take the Christian who hit rock bottom and is in a non-denominational church right now and loves Jesus. The Holy Spirit is calling that person right now closer to the fullness of truth. Now, how can the devil thwart that plan? Well, the devil does so by trying to get people opposed to the church that has the fullness of truth. So there's all kinds of tactics. There's all kinds of things within the Catholic church that the devil takes even scripture passages to twist people's minds about and lead them away from the church. And I've given this example before. I don't want to take a long time on it because this, you know, this is going to be a long podcast if if I do, but there's this idea of, you know, the Catholic Church has statues and images, and if you're looking at my video right now, I have a crucifix of Jesus sitting in front of me, and people say, oh, Catholics are idol worshipers and things like that. Now, if you're looking at um, the video, I'm holding, I'm now holding the crucifix with Jesus on it. I don't, I don't worship this uh, image. This, there's a, a wooden cross with a little metal body of Jesus. Uh, this is nothing. I could throw this in the trash. It means the the physical component as a as an object means nothing to me. It's not God. However, when I look at this, it reminds me of what Jesus Christ did for me and gave his life for me, and it helps me, it inspires me in prayer. That means I, I'm more focused in prayer. It helps my depth of love in prayer for God while I pray. If I don't have this, it's easier for me to get distracted. So the devil doesn't want us to have things that would help us grow closer to God. There's a um, the commandment to that we will we cannot have gods. We cannot have false gods. We cannot have idols. And then it goes on to say, "You shall not make graven images." And then the devil uses good-intentioned people who are miseducated or not really prepared to understand Scripture on their own, and he gets them twisted against the truth here. So we need to recognize that God himself commanded 
statues of angels to be made and put on the Ark of the Covenant. And where they resided on the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat of God. That's where God spoke to humanity, right there amidst the statues of angels. And there was a veil that separated the Ark of the Covenant from the rest of the temple, and it was covered with images of angels. This is what God asked for. Now, we're not worshiping the angels as gods. We are adorning God's sacred place with sacred images at God's request. And remember, the Catholic Church is not a separate church from the Jewish faith. It's the fulfillment of. So if you view Christianity as something separate from Judaism, then that means you are misperceiving everything that God has done here. Because everything in the Old Testament led to and was fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus didn't come to start something different. He came to fulfill what he was already laying the framework for. So we see that in the Old Testament. It's carried on in God's sacred space. We have images, statues and images of sacred things such as angels and saints to raise our hearts and minds to God in heaven. It's a foreshadowing of heaven on earth. And we actually, when we come to Mass, we are experiencing heaven on earth. It, the angels are there. The saints are there worshiping God with us. We are not separated from each other through death. We are always one in the body of Jesus. So that's what's happening. And and the devil uses things like that and misunderstanding to keep people away from the fullness of truth. So anyhow, I'm going to continue on. And if you find yourself right now battling that in your mind, realize that you're not experiencing the peace right now, which means you're not experiencing the Holy Spirit. For a moment, let go and, and ask God, God, are you a dictator? Do you want me to only look at you? Or do you want me to have a family? Did you create us to be in a family? And is, does our family extend to our relatives who have died and have gone to heaven, who we can call saints? Does our family extend to the angels? Are the angels part of my family as your created son or daughter? Are they my family members? And if they're my family members, do you call me to love my family? Or am I called to ignore my family and only look at you alone? This is what I ask you to bring to God in prayer. And what I think you'll find is that we are, in fact, a family. We are a strong family in God's house. And the more we embrace our family that's in heaven, the stronger our family becomes even on earth. So there's a dynamic there. Okay, let me continue on. I'm um, looking at this, uh, getting back to... So why aren't people led to the Catholic Church? Well, part of it is God has called every baptized Catholic to lead others to the fullness of truth. We are the fulfillment of the Israelites in the Old Testament. God chose the nation of Israel to be the witness to the world, and they were to bring everyone to God and they failed miserably. And we as Catholics have not learned well enough from Big Brother's example. And I'm once again calling on my Catholic brothers and sisters to step up, learn your faith, and share your faith. Because the whole world is dependent on us 
to bring them the fullness of truth. They cannot find it on their own. They need us, just like the Ethiopian eunuch needed the Holy Spirit to bring Philip to explain the truth about Jesus, so that the Philip, I mean, so that the eunuch could then assent his faith to the teachings of Jesus, the teachings that I've already shared regarding the sacraments of initiation. So that's the answer. It's that Catholics have not done a very good job of helping others find and follow the fullness of truth. This podcast, Faith in the Outdoors, is an example of the new evangelization. The new evangelization is a call for all Catholics to find ways to bring the ancient teachings of the church into the modern world in a way that people will embrace them and will live them. And here I am on an outdoor hunting and archery channel. I've got nothing to gain and everything to lose by doing this, folks. And in fact, that is why it took me about 10 years since I started making videos to actually get to this point. And God had to get me to the point where I realized I was more concerned about success than about being a Catholic. And now, folks, I've turned the corner and I'm back to being a Catholic the way I'm supposed to be, which means I use every means necessary and possible to bring the truth to all people so that they might have an opportunity to embrace and choose the fullness of truth for themselves. And every Catholic out there who doesn't make the effort, you are depriving other people, especially well-intentioned Christians, you're depriving them of the opportunity to embrace and live the fullness of truth. And if you don't know your faith well enough yet, then at least give them this podcast to listen to or give them other podcasts to listen to. We've got a Bible in the year with Father Mike Schmitz, and he's also doing Catechism in the Year. Things like that. Give them that so that they can begin to learn what the fullness of truth is from a Catholic perspective so they have an opportunity to choose it for themselves. Okay, now I'm going to keep going. What happens to people who are not Catholic when they die? If we must be in grace as the church teaches, wouldn't anyone who is not Catholic not be in grace? Okay, great question again. So, first and foremost, God will judge us according to what we understood and what we know and what we've, what we've done. Okay, ultimately we'll be judged according to our love. But also, part of that is how did we love God? Did we love our own family above God? Are we avoiding becoming Catholic because of how it will make our parents feel? That's putting your family ahead of God. That's a sin. Okay, so there's, a, there's an element there of imperfection. And so that person will not be ready for heaven upon death. That's why God, in his mercy, gave us a place called purgatory. The person might not be damned to hell. They might have made a good effort in other areas, and it wasn't a total rejection of God. It was a partial rejection of God. And so they will spend time in purgatory, and I talked about that in the last podcast, um, where I, I think I titled it, The Good Thief Went to Purgatory When He Died. So I explained that. Please go back and listen to that if you haven't already heard it. But that's what purgatory is all about. So many people, especially non-Catholics, will, it will be almost impossible for a non-Catholic to go straight to heaven. But I'm not the judge. 
And it's, it's even very difficult for a Catholic to go straight to heaven. That's, again, why purgatory is there. I am not perfect. Guys, I am so passionate about my faith that sometimes my intensity might scare people. And if I had um, a greater level of love, maybe I could use the power of love to pull back on my intensity and maybe come across a little gentler. I don't know. But maybe, you know, if my love was was even better than it is, if I was holier than I am, then maybe I would do an even better job of bringing people to Jesus. So I am imperfect. Or, you know, if my kids come home and they fight and argue and, and they don't do what they're told and I get very upset and I, and I yell, guys, stop it! You know, and I lack an element of charity. Again, it's an expression of my imperfection. I'm not, I'm not sitting here claiming that I'm going to go straight to heaven when I die. Because I don't know that. I'm not the judge. And I also recognize I'm imperfect. I have flaws that God is still working on with his grace that I get through the sacraments. That's why I go to confession monthly. I talked about confession when the priest was here. And I get God's grace and it prepares me for heaven. I'm, I'm, I'm a work in progress. And when I get there, then I'll be a saint in that context, the, the saint of heaven. So coming full circle, if you have been taught the truth, like through the, if you've listened to these podcasts, then there's an element of culpability. You have been given the truth. However, culpability is lessened by different things. Maybe the way I presented it was not charitable enough. And so you were closed. It, it pushed buttons in you that caused you to get angry. And so you turned off and stopped listening and you just held an element of anger and resentment toward me. And so you then resented the message of truth. Okay. So there's some Details there that that diminish culpability. Like you were incapable of fully embracing the truth because of the feelings that were you know, impacting you at the time you heard the message. So again, there's a, this element of culpability. That's why I constantly ask people to pray and turn to Jesus, and especially to John chapter 6, 51 through 58, because if you pray, if you turn to Jesus, the likelihood of you being able to hear his message drastically increases because I'm just a broken human being. I'm so imperfect. Don't expect me to, to be able to be perfect, to be able to bring everybody to Jesus. I'm making my best effort though. And I have to, I'm, I'm ob obligated to by the very nature of my baptism. Okay. I'm going to move on to the next one here. It says the Bible says no repetition in prayer. So why pray the rosary? Okay. This is another great question. And it's another one the devil uses through people misunderstanding the message given in the Bible. And then they point, you know, he points to, oh, look at this Catholic church, or vain repetition and prayer that goes against the Bible. The Catholic church is clearly not the church of Jesus. And again, this is all incorrect. So let's start with the, the passage in Matthew where it says, you know, to avoid Jesus's teaching, to avoid vain repetition and prayer. Remember Elijah and the false prophets and the false prophets, so they set up two altars and they were to call down fire from heaven. And whoever was the true, followed the true religion, God would bring down fire from heaven for them. So the false prophets recited over and over their prayer and were even cutting themselves. And so that is an example of vain repetition in prayer, meaning they thought they would be heard for the number of prayers they said. So, for example, if I say the same prayer 100 times and I haven't been heard yet, I'm like, oh, you know what? I only need to say it 200 times and then it'll be answered. So then I say it 200 times. My focus is on a number, not on God, not on love, not on my loving relationship with God. 
So that's what Jesus was speaking against. When we come to God in prayer, we're to offer him the prayer of heart. Like, like, we're, like if I need something, God, I, I don't have a job right now. I desperately need a job so that I can help provide for my family. That's me saying my, my heartfelt prayer to God. But my anguish may still be there. I might repeat the same prayer again. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, if we follow the example of Jesus, we will do that. Because you know what? Jesus repeated the same prayer over and over and over in the garden. Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Yet his anguish continued, so he prayed it again. Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And yet it didn't go away. The pain didn't go away. The apostles still fell asleep. So he came again. Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, your will be done. Can you see that it's the heartfelt prayer of the individual? Now, I mentioned in a previous podcast, there are different types of prayer. There's prayer of petition, prayer of intercession. There's prayer of worship. There's all these different kinds of prayer. And you know what? There's prayer that we call prayer of meditation. And my friends, that is what the rosary is. What does that mean? It means we ponder the mysteries of the life of Jesus. So if I was to sit here and pray to God and ponder scripture, it's hard for me to keep my focus for an hour. But with the rosary, I'm able to do that. So the, in the rosary, we memorize passages of scripture that we, we recite over and over. There's like different levels of our mind that enter into the prayer this way. And we use beads so that we're not focused on a number. Those beads are like tracking time. And in a sense, we're going to ponder this mystery of God for five minutes. And so we're going to pray this. They're set up in decades. So you're pondering the mystery, let's say the birth of Jesus, and you're saying the words of the Gospel of Luke, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's all scripture passages in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're saying that, and we're also pondering the situation of the angel appearing to Mary, and what virtue is Mary exhibiting here, and what can I learn from that? So the rosary is a powerful meditation on the life and in teachings of Jesus, and then we can grow in our spiritual life through that. So we're not focused on a number. I'm not saying, you know what, if I say this 10 times, I'm going to be heard and God's going to do whatever I want. That's not it at all. And that's what Jesus was teaching against through that passage in Matthew. Okay, um, I'm watching my clock. I got to keep going. I got a few more here that I'm hoping to get through. Why do Catholics have a crucifix versus just having a cross? He only went through that once and came off the cross. Why keep Jesus on the cross? I get this question a lot. And so I have, if you're watching the video, I have a cross in my one hand that has no body on it. And in the other hand, I have one with the body of Jesus. Now, if you're suffering and you're going to pray and you're going to ask God, why? Why, God? Why am I suffering? If you look at this empty cross, does it help you understand your suffering? Or if you see a whipped, scourged, rejected, abandoned Jesus while you're suffering and feeling scourged and abandoned, which one can you better relate to? Now, you might be different from me, but I'm going to tell you from a human perspective, this one with the body of Jesus on it is far more powerful for me and my prayer than an empty cross where Jesus is no longer here. This one shows me Jesus is here, 
and he's suffering with me. He's showing me that, you know what? I didn't come to just take away suffering. I came to unite myself to you in your suffering. That's part of what this is all about. And so we as Catholics, we view that as the ultimate sacrifice for us, the ultimate act of love. And we need to be reminded of it again and again and again. And in fact, what does Jesus tell us to do? He doesn't say, ponder my resurrection. He says, pick up your cross every day and follow me. And if you don't pick up your cross and follow Jesus, you're not a disciple of Jesus. He makes that very clear multiple times in the Gospels. So, When you look at that cross with Jesus on it, you can see where your life is headed. Folks, this is exactly where my life is at right now. Do you know how many people have told me that they no longer follow me and no longer watch my videos because of me proclaiming the Catholic faith? I'm abandoned by them. And so what? You know what? Because this is what I'm called to right here. This crucifix, I am called to hang on the cross just as my Savior did. That's what we're called to every day, folks. And if you're not carrying your cross, what are you doing? Okay, I'm going to keep going because I'm trying to get through all this. Okay. Okay, the scapular promise. Is that proven that we will not suffer eternal fire if we wear it? How can we be sure? Those of you who are not familiar, it would be a long explanation. I'm going to just summarize it as this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, has appeared to people throughout history. And only when the Catholic Church approves an apparition can we feel confident or be confident that it was actually Mary. So then if we choose to follow the message, we are allowed to but not obligated to. Now, people who joined a religious order throughout history devoted their entire life lives to God. And they wore, they wear a religious habit. And so part of the habit, I think it was the Carmelites, um, they had what's called a scapular, which was a piece that hung in the front and the back. And, in, and Mary was basically saying, hey, if you do this, you're going to go to heaven. Because look, these people are devoting their entire lives to God. They're in prayer day and night and they're living the scriptures. They are reading the Bible every day. They're in they're they're completely devoted to God. So Mary's basically saying, if you do this, you're gonna go to heaven. And so how can we extend that to the lay faithful, people who are not able to join religious life, people who are married but still want to be given that same type of assurance? So they cut a little piece of brown square material and hung it on the uh, two two pieces, one on either end of a string, and you could wear it over your neck, and it represents that religious habit, which basically means you are making the effort to give your whole life to God. So really the promise is not so much in the material, but in your response to God's grace to live your life for him. So those who wear it, who are desiring to give their life to God, They're going to end up in heaven. If you wear it thinking you can live your life however you want and still go to heaven, you are greatly mistaken. And that is not what it's about. It is about people who are striving to live their life for God. And you know what? When you see that thing hanging there, you're reminded of God. You're reminded of the path we're called to. So you're wearing a constant reminder to live 
the Christian life, which is to follow Jesus. So that's really what's going on there. It's not like something magic, but guess what? I have something even better than that. I receive the physical body of my God, my Lord Jesus in the Eucharist. His body is physically part of the body you're looking at. If you're watching the video, the body of Jesus Christ who hung on this cross that I'm pointing to is now part of my body and every single person who receives him in the Eucharist in the Catholic church. Okay. Oh man, I got one here that one last one. Oh, well, the one says, why confess to a priest? Well, we covered that in the last podcast with the priest here. So please go back and watch that. And then it says, what is the difference in Catholics, like Roman, Orthodox, Eastern Catholic? How did it become different? How did there become different Catholics? Okay. So there are different rites within the Catholic church. I am a member of the Roman Catholic rite, sometimes called the Latin rite. Now, going back 2,000 years ago, when the church started, it was spreading throughout the whole world. And in different regions, things they followed the same teachings, but their expression of the faith, like how they prayed at Mass, took on different forms. They kind of adapted elements of their culture and different things like that. And so when those practices evolved differently— they essentially became known as different rites. They are kept and embraced as valid, but they are simply different. However, they still believe all the same core teachings. For example, the um, the Byzantine Catholic Church is a Catholic rite that believes that the Pope is the leader of Jesus' church on earth. He has the, the keys of the kingdom, and they follow all the same teachings, like that God is a, tri- a trinity, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist, that Mary is the mother of God. All of these teachings, the Byzantine Catholics believe, and so do Roman Catholics, and all other rites in the Catholic Church. So it's just a matter of difference in expression, like in the liturgy. You'll notice that their liturgy is different than the Roman Catholic liturgy. Now, the Orthodox Church broke away from the Catholic Church in, in what's called the Great Schism. Just, uh, it was around the year 1000, just after that. And it was a, they had an argument essentially over a doctrinal expression. Did the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father through the Son or from the Father and the Son? I mean, that was, there was other things going on, but that was one of the defining um, arguments. And so they said, you know what? We believe we're right, you're wrong. We, we are no longer... Um, viewing the Pope as the leader of the church. And so they they separated themselves. They still have holy orders because it takes a bishop to ordain a bishop or a priest. So bishops and priests broke away at that time. So they have all of the, the, the sacraments. They just don't have the fullness which, because they're no longer in union with the Pope. And if there was ever a discrepancy that came up in the world and that discrepancy had to be addressed by the church, they would be potentially unable to progress in their understanding because they don't have one definitive leader. So they have patriarchs. There's five patriarchs who are essentially the leaders of the Orthodox Church. And if they can't come to a unanimous agreement on whatever the teaching should be, then they then they either are going to have another schism within themselves or they're going to not be able to give an answer. Whereas the Catholic Church can because we have one person who has the keys of authority. And so if there is a discrepancy, the Pope has the final say, this is what God wants us to follow. 
So we have that assurity. So anyhow, the Orthodox Church in many respects looks a lot like the, a lot of the Eastern Catholic rites, but they are not currently in communion with the Holy Father. And all they need to do is so, you know, state they will return with um, accepting the Pope as the leader of Jesus' church, and just like that, they can be reunited with the fullness of truth and become a, a member of the full Catholic Church again. So thank you so much for staying tuned to this podcast. Thank you for your questions, and stay tuned because in some of these upcoming podcasts, I'm going to have guests again, thank God, because uh, I've really been wanting to have more people on. So thank you for your questions, and please, if you have any issues or questions, email me. It's not effective to go back and forth in comments under a video like on YouTube. Let's talk. Let's share. And if anybody would like to be on the podcast, email me and we'll talk about options. Until next time, take care and God bless.